all the nerds. I am Percy here today with Nick. Buongiorno a tutti. And Todd. Howdy. This week we're kicking off our actual play campaign of Ark, a Doom RPG by Momatoes by digging into the rules and mechanics unique to this game before you meet our party and hear our first actual play session next week. For those of you who subscribe to our Patreon, you already have access to our Session Zero where Todd, Giovanni, Romana, Nick, Dex, and Anthony did some character creation. But for those of you who aren't, you can listen to all of that and our first actual play episode right now at any tier. Now, before we dive into ARC, we want to talk a little bit about its designer, Momatos, and her work with Across RPGC, which is spelled R-P-G-S-E-A. It's an acronym. Uh, so Momatos is a Filipina game and graphic designer who's designed ARC, as well as The Magus, a solo role-playing game that you can find episodes from on our Patreon. Uh, and this past June, she designed the two-player game, A Light at the End of the World. Momatos also runs the website acrossrpgc.com, which features a loose collective of Southeast Asian RPG designers, whether that's designers who live in the region itself or part of the global diaspora. Across RPGC was born after the success of the first ever hashtag RPGC convention in 2021, when Momatos thought it might be nice to have a place where anyone can explore the games made by that community. The site itself is a neat sort of stumble-upon-esque collection of 99 games by 77 writers. Right now, when we're recording, it may be more uh, by the time you're listening to this. If our listeners are old enough to remember stumble-upon as I am, uh, it's very fun to click through and just be constantly served like entirely different games by all of these talented designers who have built a really cool and uh, really... um, really innovative and exciting community in the TTRPG sphere in Southeast Asia. So these are designers from the Philippines, from Indonesia, from Thailand, all over that kind of region of the world. So what is ARC? According to Momatos, ARC is a rules-light, tension-heavy fantasy tabletop role-playing game where anyone can create urgent stories ticking down to a seemingly inescapable apocalypse. It's also described as a game in which heroes vanquish impending doom and become legendary. Something pedantic that I have to say about the genre of this game is that it feels interesting to me what this game's relationship to like the fantasy genre is. Like I think it's a fantasy game, but I also feel like it is like a sneaky fantasy game, or at least it's like fantasy not in the Tolkien sort of lineage in a lot of ways. Tell me more. I feel like it's not trying to be like medieval high fantasy, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that actually maybe has to do with the with the fact that it's from a Filipina designer. Totally. Um, and kind of rooted, not, not so much explicitly the way like Gubat Banwa is, but it is, I think, rooted in that part of the world's kind of traditions. And it's, I would say it's very much fantasy, but you're right. It's absolutely has no interest that I can see in being kind of Tolkienian in the sort of traditional sense. Yeah, like it's sword and sorcery for sure. And it's definitely like a story about heroes who become legendary and who take on existential threats the way a lot of fantasy is. But yeah, that's just like a thing that I think is interesting about it. So how does one make a character? In ARC, your character's stats are your skills and your approach scores. These 
in addition to having sort of a mechanical meaning, inform and sort of speak to who the character is and how they might encounter and approach different situations. Uh, they also can sort of affect how you sort of haggle with the guide, who is the sort of GM of this game. You might say, you might make a case for using a skill that you're really good at, the way you do in most tabletop role-playing games, although it reminded me a lot of when we played Paranoia and the way that you can kind of make a case for using particular skills because the skills themselves are not so concrete that they have... They always have like super determined meanings. I was just going to say a little bit of that in Blades in the Dark too. Yeah, totally. The kind of open-ended skill definitions. Yeah, totally. But basically, all of the numbers sort of add up to uh, whenever you want to make a roll, you'll add one of your three approach scores to one of your 18 skill scores to create your threshold number or TN. And then with a D6, you're going to try and roll underneath that number. So the higher your threshold number, the more like you are likely you are to succeed. The three approach scores that you assign sort of values to are creative, which refers to skills that are done in interesting or surprising ways, careful, which are skills utilized with attention to detail, um, with sort of intentional effort to avoid unwanted consequences, and concerted, which are skills that are sort of exemplifying effort, grit, and willpower. So you decide sort of the way that you're approaching uh, a given situation, and then you decide what skill you're using to resolve the problem in front of you skills are split into five categories knowledge skills like culture or tactics social skills like charisma or impose physical skills like coordination or weaponry pragmatic skills like tinker or survival and prowess which is made up of skills used for spells and techniques which are arcane and focus are those two particular skills in addition the other sort of mechanical element of character creation is blood and guts blood is your ability to withstand physical harm which is akin to hit points if you run out of blood, uh, damage begins to reduce your approach scores instead. Uh, and similarly, uh, you have guts, which is your ability to withstand mental or social harm. And same as with blood, if you run out of guts, damage reduces your approach scores instead. You can rest to recover these two things, but it costs real lifetime on the doomsday clock, which we'll talk about in a little bit. If all of your approach scores are reduced to zero, your character is either down and out, or they are uh, irreparably changed and marred in some way by their experience. I will say I always love a game that has blood as one of the core stats. Mm -hmm. We had this in Bluebeard's Bride as well. And I just, I love the sentence, if you run out of blood, your character is in trouble. Although it's actually, in this case, it's like, if you're out of blood, you will be in trouble soon, but you're fine for the moment, which is a very funny statement to me. Um, <laughs> because it, do it doesn't comport with my experience of running out of blood. Have you run out of blood? Yeah, often? your extensive lived experience. <laughs> yeah, my, I mean, listen, sometimes you just, you run out of blood in the middle of something, you have to stop, get more blood. It's fine. Sure. It's just a Tuesday. <laughs> it's a, yeah, that's, that's a Tuesday. That's, that's why I, that's why I still eat meat sometimes is because I need to get more blood. It's the one um, element of gritty realism in this game. <laughs> yes. Um. <laughs> uh, once you, if you're making your character, once you've established uh, your approach scores, your skills, your blood and guts, then the last kind of element of creating a character is to flesh out your inventory, which includes the sort of things that you might expect, items that can deal damage to foes, uh, supplies, oddities and valuables. And these are sometimes very practical, like crossbows or rations. But they're sometimes much more abstract, which is a thing that I really love about this game. You can get, for example, one thing my character has is confidence, which increases the damage uh, to guts that he deals. 
or personal growth, which is a thing, another thing that Twiley has that boosts his gut's defense. So that's part of my inventory. Uh, and there are a lot of just like really fun, weird ones, like a scowling face or a heartwarming letter from a friend or a mirror with shadowy beings in every reflection's background, which gives you no immediate mechanical benefit, but like is a, the sort of thing I frequently wish I had. Or my favorite and one of the most expensive items in the game, a telepathic yak. The other thing you can get in addition to the sort of quote-unquote possessions, even though some of them are very abstract, uh, are your spells and techniques, which are sort of special abilities you can give characters. Spells are arcane, techniques are somewhat more malleably like... Focus. So Yes, they, they oh. use focus, but I was going to say spells are arcane in the sense of sort of being like overtly uh -huh. magical, and techniques are more like, I don't know, like an anime or wuxia kind of like like a lot of them feel very supernatural but they're not like magic magic yeah it's like if rock lee from naruto could do it it's probably a technique right yes exactly <laughs> um so these spells and techniques involve anything from swimming through water super fast to removing the last hour of someone's memory or just like boosting your damage, opening secret portals. There's all sorts of things that you can do with them. And one of the most interesting things about them is that when you're creating your character, you can set them up to have a certain number of instances of a spell or technique. And when you want to replenish an expended spell or technique, you have to do a ritual, which might be something that you do in character, but very frequently is something that you actually do at the table as a real person like sitting still for 60 real life seconds to recharge one of your techniques or writing a secret desire on a piece of paper or and this is a favorite of mine that will come up in the actual play giving a nice compliment to somebody else at the table which is very wholesome and delightful meanwhile <laughs> meanwhile in fiction there are things like consume a door <laughs> I missed that one. That's great. There, there's a whole funny. range. At first, I thought at first I thought they were all done in real life, and <laughs> and then I when I was reviewing them for this recording, I was like, well, that can't possibly. Oh yeah, oh yes, this was my favorite. The uh, is this a spell or technique? I'm not sure. There's one called Doom Pause. It's a very powerful ability, but the ritual to recharge it just says, "Watch an ally die," and so <laughs> like. <laughs> I presume that's meant to happen in the fiction um, and not in reality, but you never know. I think Tomatoes just wants you to watch someone die. To be to be fair, as the guide, if I were the guide of this game and somebody watched a person die in real life, I would let them recharge the ritual. <laughs> if they if their mind was still on like I gotta finish this game. Yeah, I mean that that's very generous of you. I'm not sure it's was written, but. Um... <laughs> I'm a rule of cool DM. <laughs> Very fair. Uh, so anyway, those are those are just some of the weird, fun uh, things that you do to recharge your spells and techniques. And uh, you should keep an ear out for an upcoming commentary episode where we're going to dive into ritual spells and techniques in a lot more depth because they're a really cool mechanic. So at the end of this process, you will have spent uh, 30 points to make it your character and equip them with their various tools, uh, weapons, spells, techniques, 
And one of the things that I know, Percy, you really like, and I really enjoyed uh, about the Ark rule book is that the system to roll up a hero always gives you sort of, I think usually at least like three kind of levels of granularity, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it very approachable for new players because uh, almost everything gives you either like a point by system that you can use to select items very deliberately yourself or a random generation system and sometimes also just a like hey do you just want to like get to playing here pick one of these like three stat lines so there's a lot of different levels of detail you can take in creating a character and a lot of it is very friendly to like if you've never played this game before and have no idea what this means you can just roll some dice or like point to something on the page and you will be good to go particularly because i think the spells and techniques and inventory stuff that you choose can have a lot of bearing on like what the setting feels like um mm -hmm. and what kind of world you're in so there is mm -hmm. something kind of appealing about randomly generating a bunch of stuff and getting for example a telepathic yak which immediately puts me in like avatar mode yes <laughs> i lied earlier classic nick huh no, I, I was. I think I said earlier that the la that was the last thing you do in inventory. But I, in in making your character, was inventory. But I'm totally wrong, because the last, the actual last thing you do when creating your character is establish bond. Um, and bond is a mechanic that tracks how your character relates to some of the other characters in the party. So this is a part that you kind of have to do together as a table. Um, bond is asymmetrical. Um, so you can have a very high bond with someone who has no bond at all with you. Uh, and it's divided into units of minor and major bond. Basically, four units of minor bond make up one major one. Uh, major bond allows you to assist another hero by improving their target number if you have a relevant skill. And you can spend minor bond, can actually like burn it away like, a, like cash. Uh, to let someone reroll a skill check. Bond is increased during play when someone inconveniences themselves for an ally or accepts harm or serious risk for an ally. And most significantly, you can also make a permanently life-changing and perhaps sacrificial choice for an ally to gain a lot of bond all at once. It's a really interesting system. And one of the things I find fascinating about it is that Momedos has hard-capped it. Mm -hmm. So those sort of escalating levels of things you can do for an ally, you actually have to do those escalating things to get past the, I think it's the first level of major bond. Yeah, the only way you can access the, it's set in these like boxes, the only way you can fill up the third box is by doing something like that most drastic level. So you have to, yeah, you have to make, make more and more difficult decisions as a player in order to access those levels of bond. But there are like potentially very, very good mechanical benefits if you do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, we're going to talk quick and dirty how to play Ark. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but one of the major things in this game is the, the threshold number mechanic. So as we said earlier, this is calculated through whatever skill you're using and your approach for how you're using that skill. These can be augmented by how difficult the thing is. So the guide might be like, yeah, you could do that, but that's tricky. So I'm going to decrease your threshold number, regardless of what it is, by one or two. 
or I'll increase it by one or two. Um, also, as we just stated, you can get assistance from an ally that you have made your bond with to increase that threshold number. You roll 1d6 and try to go under your TN, so the higher you have there, the better. On a tie, if you hit your target number, you succeed with a consequence or fail with an opportunity, and that's fully your choice, which is very exciting. You get to like, ooh, which is more important here? Like, should the guide get to narrate this or should I get to narrate this? And does something bad happen afterwards? And then you can also sacrifice blood or guts to upgrade from a failure to a tie or from a tie to a success. Conflicts in this game, uh, particularly combat, works in turns and rounds the way that we might expect from a D20 game or like the wargaming tradition. But I think that Momatos adds a nice twist with the type of action you're attempting to do determines turn order. So for instance, if you want to stand your ground um, for either yourself or for an ally, you get to go before other people. Whereas like if you want to do a technique, that's usually really late in combat. And if you take damage or a certain amount of damage while you're trying to do that technique, maybe your technique fails. So there's a lot of like risk reward and a lot of really thinking Like, what is the thing that needs to happen this round that really excites me as a person? Because I know in, like, a D&D, often you're like, okay, well, the thing I gotta do this round is swing with my biggest attack, because that's what I do. And so you, like, spend all of your time thinking about that, like, how do I maximize damage in this particular instance? Versus, like, is it more beneficial to run away and save my allies versus to engage this threat head-on, or to take a non-harmful action. Um, All of these things are possible, which is really cool. It's interesting. The initiative order basically goes in, like, kind of escalating order of aggression, I feel Mm -hmm. like. Yeah, it's it's like standing your ground, characters go first, then those doing non-harmful actions, then those attacking or, quote, harming others than people using spells or techniques. And then last is people moving really far, which is an interesting like variation on the pattern that I don't, I don't know mm. quite what to make of, but it fascinates me. Yeah. To me, there's something about like, someone can prevent you from trying to run really far. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. That makes yeah. sense, yeah. It feels like a nice way to make, like it, it makes sense to me that it's called conflict and not combat in terms of like, mm-hmm open like being really transparent about opening up a lot of possibilities for what you might do in a given situation and in some ways incentivizing you to do things like untie the hostages or try and unlock the door or you know try and resolve the situation another way um, Mm -hmm. rather than just like hoping that you roll good and deplete the other person's hit points first right yeah the kind of d20 version where the turns are more or less the turn order is more or less arbitrary which equalizes things in a way that ends up being i guess the optimal strategy is usually beat the opposition down and then do anything else well and so many mm-hmm. D subreddits are like how do i make combat more interesting and it's like well <laughs> have it be about something other than like a war of attrition punch mm-hmm. the guy in the face it also there's something about like the shifting Uh, initiative order that reminded me of i don't think either of you have played thorn watch but maybe you have um 
so it's designed by the penny arcade guys and it's like a tabletop rpg in the form of a board game um, you play with decks of cards for actions but each of you has an initiative card uh, and all of the initiative cards including the enemy's initiative cards gets like shuffled each round and you can only defeat enemies by like knocking them down initiative all the way which i think is interesting and so like you shuffle those cards and you play them and suddenly the thing you thought you were going to do this turn is not what you're going to do this turn because like this enemy definitely can't be beaten or that enemy can or like we can stop this person from doing this thing so that this other person can do a technique but it really keeps you present at the table and keeps you from being able to be like uh let me know when it's my turn and i'll roll my dice mm. uh, which i think is nice mm -hmm. Anyway, moving on from all of that, we enter the Doom, uh, which I think is the really like the biggest part of Momedo's RPG here. Um, so the Doom is a cataclysmic event that is threatening the world of the party of heroes and their people. Um, and the hero's goal is to prevent the apocalypse. This Doom can take a variety of shapes and scopes and intensities. Momedos offers some ideas that are like, the old gods have come to wreak havoc upon the world, to like, the wedding is happening tomorrow and the invitations haven't been sent yet. And like, this is its own type of apocalypse, um, which I think is fun. Um, the Doom itself is also broken up into a couple different uh, things. You have three omens. And so these might be like different subplots or story fronts that contribute to the oncoming Doom. And the players help defeat the Doom by like addressing each of these omens. Um, and that might be like, you know, we got to beat this bad guy, but it also might be like, we need to deliver those invitations to the right people. And I think that level of flexibility adds for like interesting story opportunities um, within this system. It also creates opportunities for players who may not feel, for whatever reason, up to doing like a campaign about a plague that is attacking the world and they need to figure out how to stop the plague, you know, something really heavy and difficult. But they might be able to do a game that is about the, the wedding that needs to, you know, the show must go on. And it's nice to have a system that is flexible in terms of like what the players feel equipped to like to handle and to really like dig into. It's mm -hmm. it's so funny to me that you you read the wedding at the Momedo's example of the wedding being a doom as the show must go on. And I definitely read it in a more like rom com -y way of like the wedding is happening next week and it is the wrong wedding like these oh. two people should not get married and you must prevent the wedding from taking place which is enough like could also work in this system <laughs> absolutely yeah no extremely extremely fair one of the things that momitos reminds the guide of in the book is that the omens and the doom should progress on their own as moments are consumed so, like, if the players haven't dealt with X or Y or Z, let that plan go a little further. Whether that's, like, oh, these people who shouldn't get married, they sure did have their bachelor and bachelorette party last night, and what were you doing? And just to, like, remind the guide to make a living, breathing world for the characters. That, like, yeah, you chose to go do this thing, and something else was happening over here, and there are consequences because of that. 
The main mechanic for this is Momedos' Doomsday Clock, and at real-time intervals, moments on the Doomsday Clock tick down. Depending on how long you plan on playing for, how many sessions you plan on doing, Momedos has some math to figure out, like, oh, your Doomsday Clock should have 12 moments, or 6 moments, or 14 moments. And... She also gives you a rubric for like, okay, if this is how long you're playing, then like maybe every hour you should consume a moment. And when you do that, when you hit that hour mark, uh, the guide will roll a d6 for each omen that is still in play. And in addition to consuming the one moment, for every five or six that the guide rolls, another moment is consumed. So, like, in your first moment uh, within the game, you might consume four moments, which can be, like, very harrowing for your heroes, or you might consume just one, and it's like, ah, we can keep doing what we're doing, and we'll, like, figure things out. But what I think is really neat is that it really focuses the action on the player's part, and when all the moments are gone, regardless of what the players are up to, the apocalypse arrives hopefully our heroes will be able to forestall the doom before the doomsday clock runs out but momedos offers three intriguing possibilities for the end of the world first you and your players can accept the end each character gets to say how they feel and then you narrate an epilogue and then take a moment of silence to grieve what once was which was just such a like colorful turn of phrase to me then if instead of that you want to continue to play, either the world is now sundered and a new doom arises and you like work to, to push off the next calamity, even if you failed to push off this one, or the players can fight against fate and rewind one moment in time. Armed with the knowledge of the pending doom, they can press on and try one more time to defeat it. I really love the real-time mechanic of this game, and I, mm -hmm. I'm i so fast. I kind of want to play this game again and again because I'm so fascinated by, like, how it would feel. Uh, so we played the kind of, I was looking at the breakdown of how to decide, you know, how many moments to have and how often to advance the clock. And it's basically, if you're playing one session, she says the clock should advance every 30 minutes. If it's, like, two to three sessions, it should advance every hour. If you're playing a longer, a long slash longer campaign of like four plus sessions, it should advance every session, mm -hmm. which Ooh. I'd be I'm like fascinated by that idea. I feel like it would feel very different not having any moments consumed mid-session. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious how that feels. I mean, I think it's definitely there's advantages to both because you know we we did for the record the middle one where the clock advances every hour because we were only playing a couple of sessions and obviously in that longer version you'd have a lot more space for you know character development and party interaction and so on and so forth but i don't i think you might lose a little of that drive yeah, <laughs> which felt a, very present there's a relentlessness to the way that she writes the game like the there's a lot in the Doom and Omens sections that is very much like this, like moves forward regardless of player intervention. Like this is going to keep going. 
no matter what they do, like every time marches ever forward. Um, and I do think you lose a little bit of that in advancing at the end of each session. Although also you do avoid the pitfall of like people feeling like, oh, my like fun thing I wanted to do is actually stupid and a waste of time. So I'm not going to do it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, I do also think it's worth mentioning um, that the doomsday clock mechanic itself is inspired by like the real life doomsday clock by the bulletin Mm -hmm. of atomic scientists that like every, I think January they like advance or de advance the real life doomsday clock, which I think is like an estimator of like how close we are to nuclear winter or something like that. I think it's just the end of humanity. Yeah, the, like, self-imposed end of humanity due to the nuclear arms race. I think that, I do think that because of who they are, they're probably, I think they're most concerned. Um, If anyone was curious, it's currently 90 seconds to midnight. I was just looking that up. (laughs) The closest to global catastrophe it has ever been. Mm. (laughs) Yum. Well, on that note, I'm going to pivot us into things that we're excited about or things that we really love about this game. A sort of miscellaneous handbooky thing that I really love that, that we mentioned earlier is that every step of the way in the book, there are options for how to randomly generate things and a lot of notes on how to make things less intimidating for new role players. Because I think this is a system that is actually really, really good for new uh, people who are new to TTRPGs because the actual like resolution mechanic is really simple. It's the same resolution mechanic as lasers and feelings. But there's more character options that you can choose that feel meaningful. Um, there's like inventory and stuff to pick out and like a really good balance of like crunchy mechanical things and also inventory items that are more about story or give you sort of a, an inspiration for a narrative choice as opposed to like my, my plus three longsword. Um, so I feel like it's a very approachable system and I think the handbook is really good at making it feel approachable and is really good at pointing out like if this is too much you can kind of not worry about this for like a little bit like don't worry about this part (laughs) I really love the real-time mechanic there's a moment you'll hear at the top of our second actual play episode where everyone including me realizes that the pressure is on and that the clock is ticking I'm sure we've all been in a situation where In a d20 game, the party needs to kick down a door and deal with a baddie, but the whole group decides to spend like 20 to 30 minutes figuring out the optimal way to handle what would be a five-minute encounter. Um, And it's just like, come on, folks, move it along. And ARC does not let you do that kind of stuff. I mean, you could, but you would just be burning moments. And I think there's really something to say about the, like, bleed of the rituals and the game requiring your players to actually accomplish things in order for them to be able to reuse their abilities is really neat to me. Yeah, and I think it dovetails with the sort of blend of real lifetime and in story time that the game, like the overlap that the game creates in that way. I like, sorry, John Harper, a somewhat catty thing that I have to say that I occurred to me as we were recording this is that the real-time mechanic in Ark reminds me a lot of what Blades in the Dark is kind of trying to do because the whole thing of Blades in the Dark is like we're trying to create situations in which you don't like you don't spend a lot of time planning like you just like jump into a situation and see what happens and then you do a flashback if you need to or whatever mm-hmm. but almost every Blades in the Dark game I've played or listened to inevitably devolves into people who are planning and then the um the GM is like 
hey, we're not supposed to be planning. Here's a thing that happens. But it, like, it inevitably becomes plan- a game about planning a heist and not a game about doing a heist in mm-hmm. practice, in, in my experience. But this game, like, you don't, you don't have that option because you're just wasting, you're wasting time. And like time will will actually run out. Like there are consequences that the guide doesn't even get to necessarily like determine because the clock will run out. Mm-hmm. Percy's sworn a blood oath against Blades <laughs> in the Dark. <laughs> no, I don't dislike Blades in the Dark. It's I I have always felt privately that that sort of stated goal does not always come through in practice, and that's what I have to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's a different game that we can discuss off air. Um, no, I was going to say I, I am also like feral about this uh, real time mechanic. I mean, it. I, if I if I remember correctly, I think I was the one who brought this game, like mm-hmm. when we were planning the season, and I just I think it's so fascinating and exciting and innovative. It also reminds me of a game I haven't actually played but would like to, uh, which is Dread. Which with its mm. you know non Jenga Jenga tower for resolution mechanic, um, like Todd said, I think it promotes this really exciting, really cool bleed. Uh, I will say, as a player, when we got to the end of the first hour of play, and Todd was like, "All right, we got to the end of an hour, uh, and one moment's consumed. I'm gonna roll to see how many more were." I don't remember what the result of that roll was, but I definitely felt as a player, and I think in the rest of the group. All of us were kind of like, oh, oh, shit, we need to get our act together. <laughs> like, we have got to go. Uh, and it's, I don't know that's something I would want in every game. I was thinking about, um, you know, other places I've seen people suggest using real time as a mechanic. Like, I have seen that recommended for, like, D20 games where there's supposed to be, a, like, stressful time limit thing for example in combat like set a timer for every player's turn um and like that's fine if that's fine if you like it i don't know that i would want it in every game but it does add something really like visceral and cool to the game and of course every ttrpg like takes place in time like time's always an element for good or ill because we experience it in the moment um, so I think this game takes advantage of that in a really like really smart, innovative way that I'd be curious to see other games pick up and play with as well. And I feel like it makes a lot of sense for this game thematically because it is a game mm-hmm. about people overcoming impossible odds and facing facing a thing that will happen unless they do something. And that feels... It feels like real time makes a lot of sense because real time is also a thing that we can't do anything about. Like it just happens and we adapt to it. Um, whereas in like a D20 game where you're pulling out an hourglass when the players are trying to like escape a dungeon that's collapsing or something, that just feels like mean. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I also, I'd be curious to see what other ways there are to play with time. I'm just realizing something we didn't mention, but I love in the game is. Uh, a a nitty-gritty of the time mechanic is that if you want to rest in-game, you you pause the actual game. Like, a short rest to replenish your character's resources is two real-time minutes, where it's like, all right, we can't really do stuff for two minutes. Um, And I was going to say, I would love to see a TTRPG engage with, like, refusing to let you 
play. This isn't time related, but I learned recently there's a part of Morkborg where it's like if you get to this point in the book, burn the book. Uh, you can never play <laughs> this game again, which some people actually do, which I, I love as a as a kind of TTRPG art practice. <laughs> Ludo Arsene. Yes, Ludo yes, that's where I learned that's where I uh heard about that. It was in um okay, I've forgotten her name. Help me person. Uh, P.S. Berge is a TTRPG researcher at the University of Florida who does who's writing their dissertation in part on people games that ask you to burn the book. Um, but that's neither mm. here nor there. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, it, I, it is here and there. It's, it's, it's that true. same bleed. It is both here and there. And then, well, and there's something, there's something to, there's something like Schechnery about, and that's about like ritual and gameplay and like accomplishing ritual and that kind of thing. And the ritual of burning the Merkborg book and like the ritual of every hour, we roll and we see how many moments are consumed and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And the little rituals that if you're playing a long game of arc, you probably do, you know, the ones that are actually called rituals to replenish uh, your spells and techniques. You probably do those multiple times over the course of a campaign, uh, whether that be sitting still for 60 seconds or writing a secret desire down and folding it up in a piece of paper or anything like that. Any other thoughts on Ark, a Doom RPG? I really like this game. Um, it's really good. And I'm excited yeah. I'm excited to share our, our playthrough of it, and I, I hope that people give it a shot because it's a you know, it's a small press product and I would like it to get a little more love in the world. <laughs> and it is genuinely very easy to pick up. Like the resolution mechanic is really, really simple. Last thing, but I just want, we mentioned Momatos is a graphic designer and this will, you know, do nothing for our podcast listeners, but it does bear mentioning that the art is gorgeous. Like the, the art that she did for the book, uh, throughout, I really love. So it is a gorgeous yeah. book. It's really beautiful. And I know this is not the direction we wound up in, but the art put me in the mind of like, you are characters in a Florence and the Machine album and mm -hmm. like this uh, princess is a werewolf mm -hmm. and also will like raise the city to the ground so that the ocean can run red. Like that is the sort of mindset that Momato's art puts you in. Like there's a lot of very like ancient magics have awoken once more within the land sort of vibe i would love to see the florence and the machine version of a high school swim coach could be fun could be fun um if you want to understand that reference uh tune in next week and listen to our first uh episode of our actual play campaign of arc a doom rpg thank you so much for joining us this week on dungeons and drama nerds Dungeons & Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and this episode was mixed and edited Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, Dex Pham, and Anthony Sertel-Dean. Our ARC campaign features Giovanni Camagno as Silt, Anthony Sertel-Dean as Denise, Romana Isabella as Gorm, Nick Orvis as Twily, Dex Fan as Lemon Sprinkle, and Top Ryan Backus as the guide. 
If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find all our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. And be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons & Drama Nerds.